As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Matt Goldman. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Steiniger. Today we talked with Greg Buffet of Dundee Capital. What did you guys think? So this was really interesting. He had written a post, um, will the re- real seed funds please stand up? Um, and it was all about the the kind of shifting in uh, capital that's happening in, at the smaller stages. And so it was really interesting to get to hear his view as a VC out of the Midwest as to what is happening um, uh, kind of nationwide. What do you guys think? Yeah, there was a lot of good advice in here for companies at any stage, really. He talked about how the, the different stages and markets can affect you no matter where you are and what that means for how you do fundraising in your company and maybe how you should be a bit more opportunistic when you can. So let's get into it. 
Wistia is a video hosting platform built specifically for business. If you're using video as a part of your marketing strategy, you need to be able to measure its impact. Wistia is helping over 175,000 businesses do just that with premium video hosting, lead generation tools, and in-depth video analytics. For more about Wistia, visit wistia.com forward slash rocketship. All right. So tell us a bit about Dundee VC. So we're based at Omaha, Nebraska, an, an early stage fund. Um, we say seed, some people call it pre-seed. So we're operating on an $18 million fund right now, which is our second fund. And we raised it in 2012. So our thesis is there's a lot of early stage companies in the Midwest that need capital, especially as kind of the cost to create companies um, has decreased over the last decade or so. And there's not a lot of knowledgeable early stage capital um, for those companies. So that's where we invest in, and sometimes the back of my napkin ideas and, and usually companies that are first starting to get those, those first few customers is where, where we come in and provide kind of um, that institutional knowledge and, and help you figure out your funding um, path to A, B, C, D, and beyond. So you recently wrote an article, uh, Will the Re- Real Seed Funds Please Stand Up? And it was kind of yep. talked a lot about the ecosystem today, the emergence of these micro VCs. Um, why do you see the micro VC as, a, as an emerging trend kind of popping up nationwide? Yeah, so it's it's compelling. I mean, the, the cost to, to start a startup have, have been getting cheaper. The cost to maybe scale startups, um, not so much. But you can create a, a startup really, really cheaply these days. You can you can hack together an MVP, kind of that initial prototype, and, and sell it um, to consumers, to customers, whether you're B2B or, or B2B, B2C. You can get people to start using for really, really cheaply. So that means... There's a lot of kind of early stage investors that are like, okay, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of deals that can get off the ground really quickly and really cheaply. And there's been just a flurry of, of capital um, at our stage. So when we went and raised the fund in 2012, there was only, I think, about 70 or 80 micro VCs, which is kind of under 50 million is, is the generally accepted term for that. Now there's, there's hundreds, I think three or 400 um, is the latest count. So just a ton of, of capital at the early stage and a ton of companies getting off the ground there as well. So when you say micro VC, so it's it's the amount raised at the LP level. Do you yep. see trends in how much they invest and in the equity that they tend to take? Yeah, so it it varies across across the funds that we invest with and, and, and the deals we're seeing. Some are really kind of not ownership based, but they just want to be in the hottest deals. So they want to build a brand for themselves with so many micro VCs out there. Mm. So some are, are ownership based and some are just, you know, ha- trying to hack their sing- shingle out there and say, Hey, we're here. We're open for business. Um, we're, we're trying to chase deals and, and be in the best deals. So I don't know if there's a, there's a trend necessarily um, or a common theme across ownership, but I think there's certainly a lot of capital driving valuations up, making it harder to be ownership driven at this stage. So what about on the side of the startups? Are you seeing trends in the size of deals and the valuations that are going on? Yeah, I, I think the valuations are getting higher um, and the round sizes are getting larger as well. I think it's really kind of, you know, the power law that people always talk about, the the top, you know, 1% or even even top 0.1% of, of venture deals drive the vast majority of returns. I think we're kind of seeing that as well. Um, in the deals that the funds are chasing, they all want to be in kind of the hottest deal. They all 
want to be in, in the biggest round at, at the highest valuation, which doesn't really make sense from an economic return perspective, but it makes sense because it's kind of sexy um, and the deals you want to be in. And it's a really entrepreneurial-friendly, founder-friendly time to be raising capital, especially at our stage, given just the influx of, of money. So that's driving round sizes up and, and, and valuations up. I mean, why wouldn't you take the extra capital for the same amount of dilution if, if you had the choice? It seems like a no-brainer. Sometimes it can kind of um, flood the company, which is what we, we caution our, our companies against and kind of what I wrote about in the article. But as an entrepreneur, it's, it's hard to sit in their seat and, and tell them, don't take that extra dollar. So it seems like there's kind of a misunderstanding of the implication of taking more money um, and that, you know, a lot of companies actually can put themselves out of business by taking too much. Is that because they're getting convinced um, from external forces and even those in the venture capital world that um, the most money you can get, you know, take it? Or is it kind of like the notch in your belt of how much you can raise? Like, why do you think that there's such a a misunderstanding about um, the negative implications of taking a larger first round? Well, I think entrepreneurs in general and, and investors as well are, are very ego-driven. I mean, you have to be to, to start a company and think you're going to um, be the top dog in the industry and, and build something that no one else has thought of or been able to execute on before. So I think that that plays a part in it and, and certainly press, you know, covering um, not necessarily – revenue metrics or any kind of actual business related metrics um, and more covering more funding, funding events and, and what sexy plays a part in it as well. I think, I think it's, it's, it's really ego driven at the end of the day. Like I want to be in, in the hottest deal. I want to raise the most money and it's, it's not a competition to see who can raise the most money, right? It's a competition to see who can still be in business five, seven, 10 years down the road. But I think sometimes that gets lost in the day to day and and especially in fundraising, I think if you if you raise too much money for kind of this stage of your company, it can really be dangerous, and and you just end up burning too much money. So, in your article, kind of along those same lines, you mentioned Jet dot com, and I'm wondering yeah. if you can walk us through that deal so we can understand kind of how much they raised and what are the the metrics that they actually need to hit um, to keep to stay alive, essentially. Yeah, so, so Jet's a, a crazy idea. I mean, they're, they're betting on the founder, right? I think his name is, is Mark. I'm not, not sure on his last name. But he sold Quidzy.com, Diapers.com um, to Amazon for, I think, around $600 million. And, and he comes back and he says, all right, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take down Amazon. We need to flip this e-commerce model on its head. And it's a massive, massive undertaking, right? Like you see how, how big of a company Amazon is, how well they're doing and, mm-hmm. and how much of a stranglehold they have on e-commerce. Like taking that down, you need a lot of capital. Um, and so even before launch, like to just build the, the massive um, undertaking that is all the warehouses they need across the country for two day shipping, you know, all the inventory they need to have on hand to offer the prices, the bulk discounts with retailers. They just needed to raise a ton of money to make it happen and to be able to attract the talent employees to, to take on Amazon. So they raised 225 million bucks before launch. I think, you know, since launching a few months ago, they've, they've raised even more capital. And I think the latest thing I saw was, was $3 billion was, was their valuation and they're losing money hand over fist, but on purpose because they need to get to, I think $20 billion um, in volume to make the model work long term. So it's a big, big bet. And, and twenty billion sounds like a lot, but if you 
you look at Amazon's market cap, it's only a fraction of that. So if they can get to that scale, the $3 billion valuation makes a ton of sense and, and the bets on the founding team and, and the employees that they've been able to attract so far. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. And then let's kind of counter that with, um, you mentioned Slack and Mattermark. Um, What was your take on kind of how they built out uh, or built up to their Series A rounds? Yeah, so so those two are are an example of of companies that that raised a little bit of money. I think maybe a, a couple million bucks apiece um, on the backs of of a different idea. So Danielle at Mattermark um, had a startup. I think it was called Recurly that went through Y Combinator, um, and then after Y Combinator hit hit a little bit of a of a slump. They had some money in the bank, and they just realized, hey, this, this isn't working. Um, we've got money in the bank. Our investors don't necessarily want you know pennies on the dollar back. What are we seeing out there? What have we learned? What can we build um, with this capital that can that can be a, a high growth company? And, and the nice thing there was they'd only raised a couple million bucks. They'd raised the right amount of capital for their stage. They, they had the option to kind of buckle down, um, go to two or three employees. You know, eat, eat the old ramen for for lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, and find an idea that worked and started to take hold. And, and Slack was actually the same way. It, I, I think it was the first investment was was in a gaming company, yep. um, but they'd use this internal communication tool for their workforce, and then just word of mouth in Silicon Valley, everyone else started saying, "Wow, this is really cool. This is really cool. Let's use it for our team." And, and all of a sudden, they've got one of the fastest growing companies ever. And the reason they were able to kind of buckle down and and even switch that model was they'd raised the right amount of money for their company. They hadn't kind of gotten too big for their britches because if you if you look at a Jet.com, there's no chance they're ever. Um, going to go to a different business model. Like they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. They've got hundreds of millions of dollars of of liquidation preferences outstanding based on that one business model. And they have to hit billions of dollars in volume to make it work. Whereas something like like Slack and Mattermark, they'd raised the right amount of money. They didn't have too many um, investors saying, hey, we need our, our liquidation back. Uh, just shut our things down and, and let's take our pennies on the dollar. They were able to kind of pivot and say, Let's let's figure out an idea that actually works with the capital we have left. They they had optionality, and sometimes skipping you know that seed round or that that early A rounds and, and raising the big bucks doesn't give you that optionality. You've only got one avenue you can go down with your company. So and then we've also seen kind of the the news about Zirtual. Um, what mm-hmm. happened there, and and why couldn't they make it work? So I think there are a few things at play based on on what I've read up on it. Um, I think one was just general um, financial. I, I don't want to say incompetence because I, I don't I don't know them, but we see this with a lot of our founders. They don't really understand their finances down to the dollar. Um, and when you outsource accounting and finance, which happens a lot, I mean, a lot of our companies at the early stage do it. But when you outsource that as kind of a, a 400 employee um, company, and, and you switch your workers um, from from 1099s to actual employees, there's a lot of complexity going on. 
Um, and, and they were burning a lot of cash too. They, they didn't have many options besides kind of raising that note they thought was going to come in the door and, and ended up not coming in the door. Um, and I, I think there it's, it's mostly a case of just burning too much money. Like you've got to have a handle on your burn rate. And, and they, they had a really good volume and, and a really good revenue run rate. I think they're, they're on pace to do 11 million bucks a year in revenue, but they were just burning too much cash. So I mentioned in the article, um, when you're thinking through fundraising, one, you've got to leave yourself optionality. So if things don't go well, you can flip the switch to profitability. And that's not easy, um, but you've always got to have that in, in, in the back of your mind, and, and they didn't. So you mentioned that Mattermark had optionality and that they were able to hunker down and, and really change what they were doing in order to have yeah. a better shot at success. Um, Danielle from Mattermark tweets a lot about what if the market adjusts or anything changes, what's your plan for what to do? Uh, do you have any advice for companies that are, you know, maybe have high burn now? What's a good hunker down plan for them if some external factor changes? Yeah, so I think generally just know where you're going to cut costs and where you're going to cut costs is probably the things that, that don't directly correlate with revenue. So you might be, um, be building product ahead of yourselves. You might have you know, a heavy spend on engineering thinking long term. Um, if it doesn't directly correlate with revenue, that might be something I'd have top of mind for, for what we'd have to cut. And the other piece is that's really hard on a company's morale, even if, even if you do cut um, development or wh- wherever it is, and, and it does make sense at the time, that's really hard to go from, say, a company with 60 employees to 30 employees just because you know the markets have shifted and we weren't able to fundraise. So I think hiring, I, I don't really want to say, you know, slow down necessarily because we're VCs, we're investing for, for growth and, and fast growth, but just be very careful that you're, you're not hiring a, ahead of yourself. So in the article, you mention optimizing for partnership, not evaluation. Can yep. you kind of take us through what that means? Sure. So there's a lot of money at this, at this early stage. There's a lot of money at, at almost every stage in, um, in venture capital right now. And I think what that means is, is it's become sexy. There's a lot of people wandering in. Um, there's a lot of new avenues for funding on AngelList. There's crowdfunding. Not all capital is created equal. There's certain um, types of capital. There's certain investors within a broad group, so within VCs as compared to something like Angelus as compared to crowdfunding. There's differences between those. There's also differences between VCs, right? Make sure you're, you're choosing a partner um, who can add value to your company, who's aligned with kind of your long-term vision. If you're, if you're taking angel money and that angel's expecting a 2x return or that angel's investing purely out of the goodness of his heart, that's a lot different than taking VC money where they might be expecting you know, a 20x to 30x return. So just knowing what you're getting into and optimizing for an investor that's aligned with your vision long-term and also short-term, the, the steps it takes to get there is, is critical. It, it comes down to communication, but I think it's, it's important to know not all capital is created equal. So before we talk, or before we kind of hit record, uh, we were talking about uh, the public market's effect on the yeah. private market. Um, can you walk us through kind of what some of the recent developments have been in the public market that may affect evaluations on the private market? Yeah, sure. So I do want to mention this as well. Just, just with kind of I mentioned in the article, there's this huge influx um, of money at the at the seed stage, at the early stage, and also at later stages. And it seems like everyone's paying higher valuations. That might be warranted, but it's going to take a long, long time. 
um, to actually flesh that out. I mean, it takes five, seven, ten years for these companies to get that initial investment, scale, and then return capital. So it, it kind of remains to be seen if, if those higher valuations are actually warranted. And a lot of kind of what that follows in, in, in the near term is, is the public market comps. So the public market um, on the tech side, as Bill Gurley had a tweet storm about this yesterday, is, has really gotten crushed in the last six to eight weeks. So, so the big names, you're looking at Twitter, um, Salesforce, Google, as a whole, most of those are down you know, anywhere from a quarter to 50% over the last six to eight weeks, which really just crushes um, what they're trading at in terms of multiples. And a lot of those late-stage private market valuations are based on public multiples because you think these companies are going to go public in the next year to two. So if, if, a, if a public company as an indexer is trading at something like 8 to 10x sales, I think, I think Google's at six to ten, 6x right now, Twitter's at 9 or 10x. Um, trailing 12-month sales and Salesforce is, is in that range too, 7 to 8x. If those come down significantly, which they have, that will also affect the late-stage private markets and, and the premiums that investors have been paying um, are no longer going to hold water. So that next round of capital, when they do need to raise it, may come at a, at a down round or when they IPO, it, it may not um, be at an uptick in valuation, which has a lot of just downstream impacts in terms of anti-dilution provisions and, and a lot of other things that are, that are just not good for the company. So there could be a, a real um, tightening of, of, of the belt of the purse strings here in the late stage. And I think what it means is kind of what I mentioned in the article. You've got to have a, a vision to profitability. You've got to have an option other, other than just raising more money at a higher valuation because it's not necessarily always going to be there. So are you saying that the smaller exits of a company like Uber into the public market, will that affect the capital that's going into the seed stage? It will long term. Long term, I, I think, okay. I, I think it'll, it'll take a long, long time to trickle down. I mean, I think the, the public markets most immediately affect those companies like Uber that are going to go public in the next you know, 12, 15 months. And then they affect the series C and D, and then they affect B and then A and then C. And by that time, the public markets might be thinking something completely different. So I, I think it takes a while um, to affect the C stage, which is why, you know, for us, we really kind of want to stay rooted in our, in our philosophy, not necessarily value investors, um, but being cognizant of, of valuation and not overpaying for deals where there's a lot of, of heat around them. So what does all this mean for seed stage founders that are listening? What can they do differently to prepare themselves for all these changes that are happening? Yeah, so I think it's a good question. I think never be reliant. Like, Don't wait until it's too late to raise money. Um, so what that means is a lot of founders at the seed and A stage, and, the, and our founders too sometimes, um, they think of, of the runway as, as kind of a, a timeline for raising money. So if I'm six months from out of cash, you know, I'm going to start thinking about raising money. You should be thinking about raising money always and also thinking about raising money opportunistically. So it's not necessarily when I'm, when I'm six months out of cash or three months from out of cash. It's when I have the metrics that can really get me that next round of capital. I mean, capital is pretty cheap right now. Um, so I'd encourage you to, to raise money opportunistically but don't raise too much money that you don't have optionality with the business. That's great advice. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Can you let everybody know where they can keep up with you online? Yep, sure. My, my Twitter handle is at GBofay. I'm so happy to kind of engage in the discussions there. And then my email, if anyone has any questions or wants to get a hold of me, is greg at dundvc.com. Feel free to, to reach out. 
Perfect. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we have tons of other awesome episodes on our website. Check them out, rocketship.fm. And be sure to check out our app discount section where we have discounts on products that we use every day, like Woo Themes, Wistia, Treehouse. Go to rocketship.fm forward slash essentials and get your discounts today. See me standing by myself. You keep me clambering, just trying to hold my breath. I know that you're done, cause you're gone, my friend. And I know that you're done. Thank you.